The Guardian. A number of schools were miscategorized, and for that I apologize. And in particular, there were schools which were listed as proceeding, when in fact their rebuild will not now go ahead. That confusion caused members of this House and members of the public understandable distress and concern. And I wish to take full personal responsibility for that regrettable error. Oh dear, it's red faces on the green benches. As Michael Gove says sorry for getting it wrong on which schools he's cutting, The Guardian's Politics Weekly considers whether it's back to business as usual at Westminster. I'm Tom Clark, and joining me here in the pod I have Julian Glover, Raphael Bear, and in our Westminster office, Michael White. Today we'll soon discuss Nick Clegg's plans to shake up politics as well as rearguard efforts by the gentleman in Whitehall to keep it exactly the same. But first, Mike, a ministerial apology. You've seen a few. How does this rate on the grovelometer? Well, Eden made an idiot of himself, uh, uh, but he had the good common sense to uh, take the personal responsibility. Uh, you don't blame the civil servants. Uh, you take it on the chin. Uh, that's what you're paid for. You're the boss. Uh, even though, of course, it'll be the civil servants' fault, not his. His, and it is a timely reminder to the Tories who have spent ten years laughing, also laughing at Labour ministers for screwing things up, which are really screwed up by the civil service. Uh, that uh, they too will suffer the same fate. Governments always do. A number of the dramatic resignations in the last government, including uh, uh, David uh, Blunkett's, on at least one occasion, you know, down to civil service, just bad provision of paperwork. Uh, the immigration minister, uh, whose name I've already forgotten, she was in a Beverly Hughes, um, had to go too because she wasn't given the paperwork. It happens a lot. And in this case, I don't imagine Gove typed up the list himself. Do you? No, probably not. But Julian, we'll come on to the civil service in a, in a moment. But just first of all, on Gove himself, he's more Cameronian than Cameron. Um, and the boss certainly wouldn't want to see him tainted. Do you think this one will blow over quickly? Or do you think there could be a a lasting damage to Brand Gove here? I think it'll blow over fairly fast. It'll be remembered by Labour, which will uh, attack him with it. Uh, it. It matters in one sense that Gove is absolutely central to the project, not just in that he's a Cameroon and ideologically close, but education reform, the idea of a new system for schools, of scrapping Labour's fairly bureaucratic management and scrapping the building schools for the future programme, which has cost a lot of money, is core to their idea of sort of managing public services differently. And on the first test, Gove got it wrong. And of course, he's a journalist, so you wouldn't expect him to get it right. No, no, and we just put it in the corrections column and it would be fine. And he, he unfortunately has to come to the comments. Of course, we had Theresa May the other day apologising as well for um, a written statement being briefed to the journalists that then became a, an oral statement in the Commons. So we've had two ministerial apologies in a week. And the Labour Party will say that shows the Tory party doesn't respect Parliament. Um, Tories will probably say the fact they're coming to the dispatch box to say sorry is something new. It's all a bit of a mess. I'd say that, that point about Michael Gove's education reforms being a sort of flagship policy is, is fantastically important because that continues a process that started in opposition, didn't it? That there was a sense that whenever people asked around the Cameron project, is there something you can point at that symbolise, signifies Cameronism, they could quickly bring out uh, the education policy. But the danger for Michael Gove is that that alienates him in the shadow cabinet and in the Conservative Party, because I think there's a sense from a lot of people that this has come about because he got out of the traps very quickly ahead of the comprehensive spending review to say something will get built by this government. Lots will get destroyed, but something will get built and it will have the name Michael Gove written over it in big letters. Yes, I mean, he's already got Tory MPs protesting, at least one Tory MP protesting about the schools being cut in his constituency and, and, and the building. Because a lot of these schools 
are now in quite Tory areas. The, the early wave of building schools yeah. in the future was kind of inner cities and, and, and often Labour areas. So these are Tory cuts hitting Tory voters, and Michael Gove got it wrong. Isn't that, um, Raf, the, the real issue here, though? I mean, the reason why this is painful, if you get the detail wrong, is because schools are being cut. And this is quite soon after a budget which promised capital spending would be would be protected, savagery everywhere else. But investment in new buildings was the one thing they weren't going to cut any more than Labour had planned. Yeah, I think part of the, well, the problem there is that within the framework of education policy, there's quite a lot of thinking that has been done around the question of what really boosts standards, what really gets results. And you can point to research that says, essentially, it's what goes on in the classroom, the relationship between parent and child and teacher. And actually, if the, you know, the paint's peeling off the walls, it doesn't really matter so much. And I think that there, that sort of empirical point has got into the heads of Michael Gove and the Department of Education, and they've forgotten that politically, actually taking schools away from children is just not a very good idea if you want to make them like you. And that's separate from the sort of evidence base that fed into the policy. And I think there's an element of the sort of Gove wonkishness that's slightly blinded him to but, just but how just politically on the, toxic on, it is. On, on the point we started at, the apology. I mean, Michael Gove does do very good apologies. He's, the man is incredibly polite. His, his, his statement was beautiful in, 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 in its grovelingness. And, and, and maybe just as a piece of art form, we should, we should congratulate him. I'd, uh, I'd say also just one other point on that. I think he's also, he's very, very smart. And I think he's realised that because of the nature of coalition, it's, there aren't going to be many reshuffles in this government. It's, it's just complicated to reshuffle the coalition government. So this is his department. He's got to make it work and he's got to make his legacy in it. Well, he's, an coming, ambitious man. He's, he's coming quite well out of this discussion because you're saying he cares almost too much about his brief. He cares too much about the evidence. Um, one detail of it, though, that I think he has got a few questions to answer on is this new schools network that he's giving public money to that's employing a couple of his um, former advisors. Do you think this could give it a slightly different take, uh, Raph? if uh, it turns out that, um, you know, if that becomes a kind of propriety issue? Well, I mean, I, that is the sort of thing that people, again, and the Labour Party will want to ask questions. I don't know the detail of how the New Schools Network is funded and what its relationship with public well, Neither does anyone is. else. Well, That's neither the does point. anyone else. And it was certainly, again, it would, in opposition, it was very important that they could show that there was the demand for this process that they were about to, to launch. Um, so, I mean, from that point of view, I would say, again, that there's... There's a sort of Bolshevism in the approach to this particular policy in that the ends will justify the means because it's so important that there is a legacy. Well, Michael Gove took full responsibility in public, but as Michael White here has already indicated, behind the scenes there might have been some dressing down in the department of the officials who landed him in it. And with civil servants leaking left, right and centre and with ministers about to take an axe to their index-linked pensions, we asked Queen Mary's Whitehall expert, Dr John Davis, to give us his take on the perennial tensions between mandarins and ministers and ask whether they've reached new heights. It's a fascinating time for the British civil service. Not only are we in the first coalition, peacetime coalition, certainly in uh, living memory, it's a very febrile political atmosphere backed up by an, uh, an ongoing economic crisis which looks like it will touch every corner of Whitehall. The civil service has, certainly to my ears, is in a real period of flux. Uh, on the one hand, all civil servants, contrary to New Labour in 1997, not all of New Labour, but plenty of New Labour, um, the civil service actually does enjoy a changeover of government. Uh, new faces, new ideas, a change is as good as a rest. But at the same time, uh, 
this particular coalition, we can see it's, it's, it's placing pressures on the civil service which are unprecedented, certainly, certainly since the Second World War. What we're looking at is a civil service, senior civil servants, who are under pressure to maintain tradition, under pressure to maintain public service delivery, but at the same time, and as we saw in the papers over the weekend, being asked to draw up cuts in certain departments of up to 40%. This is incredible. More and more, it would seem that there is a great rush to get through major Whitehall cuts, all with the idea that maybe five years is not, we're not going to see the full five years. Add to this the fact that the civil service are being asked to deliver cuts in the civil service, which is only going to disenchant certainly, I mean, maybe not the absolute um, mandarins, the senior civil service, but certainly at that middle and lower ranks. I mean, the, the morale, I understand, is dropping like a stone. And you can understand why. They're being told to expect redundancy, uh, um, um, uh, redundancies, but their redundancy packages are going to be cut. They are being told that they will have to work harder, they will have to deliver more, all for a wage which is being frozen and a pension which may well be cut into the future. So what we have in conclusion is a really strange time for the British Civil Service. They will pride themselves on their abilities, although we are seeing a number of quite significant, and the Guardian certainly had a major leak a week or so ago on the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility and the Treasury's forecasts for public sector unemployment. This followed hot on the heels of the leak of the Queen's speech. These sort of things, you know, when you get major leaks very early on in the government, the suspicion is that officials are disenchanted, although this could have come from a political source, who knows? But the overall point is that the British Civil Service is in one of its historic turning points, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this pans out. Mike, even uh, as we're talking, I think David Cameron's out um, making a speech to a load of civil servants, and he's talking in particular about uh, getting rid of the old bureaucratic culture, putting the citizen more in control of public services. Do you think, first of all, that Number 10 regards civil service not as its tool, but as an, an obstacle in the way of what it wants to achieve? Uh, no, I don't think it's as uh, intrinsically hostile as Labour was in '97. Uh, an old hand, a minister who had been a minister in the 70s, said to me uh, quite recently how shocked he was in 1997 that the young people coming in with the new Labour project regarded the civil service as the enemy who are trying to thwart them. Uh, why, he said, uh, because they'd all watched and been raised on Yes Minister, uh, a much gentler satire than the brutalities of the thick of it, uh, a much nicer one too. But uh, my friend said, this is wrong. You've got to work with them. They have their prejudices. They have, they have their institutional agenda. They can be very obstructive. I know this from other people, don't we all? Uh, but, you know, basically they're honest and uh, they do their best. What they lack is um, uh, sort of dynamism, uh, really. They need to be prodded, and that's what Margaret Thatcher and 
John Major and of course Tony Blair uh, found constantly that you had to push them and they uh, and you had to be clear as to uh, what you wanted to do. I'm sure Cameron is more sort of sophisticated. He is in many ways uh, in, in, in his attitude. Uh, but of course what he also wants to do is uh, cut back the state. And he created this phrase, very Google sort of phrase, but he was influenced by Google people, including Steve Hilton and his wife, uh, you know, the post-bureaucratic state. Uh, and by that, uh, they talk about, you know, enabling markets. Uh, Blair t- talked this sort of language, individual citizens, choice, that but, sort but, of but Mike, think, Just back on the civil service, I, I, I think the clip we've just heard is excessively negative, and uh, I don't think it is representative of how the senior civil service see the Tory government and the Lib Dem government. Uh, there seems to be a very good level of cooperation. I think people at the very top of the civil service feel that the ministers are respecting them more, that departments are more powerful. You hear people in the Foreign Office, for instance, describing a department for the first time since, uh, well, probably since 1997. The department now has a minister who's taken seriously by the Prime Minister and it has a sense of independence and the Treasury... Well, that's not fair, Julian. The, the Treasury... Well, I, I, it is fair, I think. Why right? not, Mike? I think that the, the Tony, Tony Blair was his own Foreign Secretary. William Hague is David Cameron's Foreign Secretary. There's a clear difference Well, there. we'll see. We'll certainly see, but this is the sense that they have at the moment. And I think that is happening across departments. There is a degree of cooperation between departments, which by the end of the Labour government often found it hard to talk. Um, cabinet committees are mattering hugely in the coalition. So there, there are clear bureaucratic sort of defining points of contact within administration that have really not worked under Gordon Brown and by the end of Tony Blair. And so I think the civil service is quite optimistic about this government, not negative. Okay. Clearly, clearly there's the issue of cuts, which is a... And cuts huge, to their huge. own terms. And cuts is to their own terms. And that is an employment issue. But I think in terms of the process of government, there are some signs for hope. I'd, I'd sort of go along with that, actually. I think that there is obviously a fundamental problem in that you are asking, you will be asking some people to draft their own death warrant. And that is not an easy thing to do from a managerial point of view. But what I have picked up from my sort of paltry collection of contacts in the civil service is a sense of ex- surprise and gratitude that the culture has changed in the relationship between uh, government and and the civil service in that even at the end of 13 years of Labour government, there was a sense that too many ministers felt neurotic and anxious and that they were squatting in Whitehall and that someone was going to come along and say, well, actually, we've checked you out and really you shouldn't be here at all. Off you go. And that rightly or wrongly, whatever you think about it, it is gratifying for the civil service when ministers come in, they feel comfortable with power, they feel they wear their office comfortably and therefore have more confidence in the administration. Well, of course, they have more power because there's a moment when uh, new ministers come in, they don't know a lot, most of them are horribly inexperienced these days, haven't run much. This is an opportunity for the permanent government to get a lot of its agenda back in play and persuade ministers to do things uh, which they might otherwise have not have done. The classic example, everybody knows what I'm going to say, is persuading people like Nick Clegg and Vince Cable. It was absolutely vital to uh, cut back or at least begin the process of cutting back public uh, expenditure rather than raising taxes in ways that only two or three weeks earlier they'd said would push us into a double-dip recession. I listened to a senior minister uh, yesterday describing graphically how he was persuaded by Treasury mandarins that this was the right thing to do. Um, but Mike, do you not think that there's also a point that Julian makes here about the coalition, uh, the machinery of the coalition 
meaning that we cannot have sofa government. This week, for the first time, we had this coalition committee, reconciliation committee or something, cranking into action for the first time on health. Yeah, I, I think that is a good, uh, a good uh, uh, what's the word, a mechanical aspect of the coalition, that you will have to have talks between the coalition parties. The coalition agreement, 400 points, was cobbled together quite quickly by Dutch or German standards, and they're sort of watching each other, the Mexican standoff. And uh, that probably uh, is constructed although Tony Blair was not the first person to practice uh, a coalition, uh, sorry, so for government, uh, this process of atrophy of cabinet government and pushing stuff off to agencies, arm's length agencies, and into ad hoc committees, it's been going on for 25 or 30 years under the pressure and complexity of modern government. Well, whether or not mandarins want to preserve the business of government as usual, Nick Clegg has very different ideas. Here is the Deputy Prime Minister at the start of the week promising a clutch of reforms which he claims will shake the old politics to its foundations. On the referendum, Mr Speaker, by giving people a choice over their electoral system, we give that system a new legitimacy. Surely, when dissatisfaction with politics is so great... One of our first acts must be to give people their own say over something as fundamental as how they elect their MPs. Julian, the uh, thing that grabbed all the attention is the fact there's going to be this referendum, which we'll talk about in a second, but it wasn't the only thing on Clegg's agenda, was it? No, he's got a wider sort of brief to reform, to radicalise government. I mean, he's talking about freedom. He's he's set up a website where you can go to it now and and, and log on the law you want to abolish. And he came up with some sort of jokey examples of grey squirrels. But if you go to the website and it crashed on its first day because of traffic, and it really is being used a lot, uh, the the laws that are being abolished are probably the ones Lib Dems like. And and, and I imagine that the Hunting Act is going to be the bill, (laughs) most of all, that uh, half a million people in Britain want to abolish. And we'll see if the Lib Dems respect the popular will on that. Other things like the smoking ban, very unpopular law. So the danger with freedom is that people might use it in, 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 in ways that uh, liberals don't enjoy. Um, he's talking about Lord's reform. He's talking about really huge change to constituency boundaries. And that, I think, more than the AV referendum is going to be the sticking point of parliamentary discussion of this bill. Do MPs, just like the civil service, want to vote for their mm. own abolition? Um, and every MP now, if you ask them, you know, what about your boundaries? They've all got theories as to which bit of the neighbouring seat they might be able to take over. But 50 MPs, probably some new Tory MPs, are going to lose their job. There probably won't be a Tory MP in Scotland because of these changes. That That's going to be very controversial. And you said, uh, writing in the paper this week, that it was in everyone's interest to overstate how big a reform this alternative vote is. Could you just explain why you think it's small beans compared to... One of those delightfully bizarre British situations where the only party that went into the election advocating a referendum on the alternative vote now appears to be going cold on it, while the Liberal Democrats want a STV or some other kind of proportional representation, which they think is a proper change that really would be representative of the way people vote. So that means 20% of the votes, 20% of the seats. Something like that. And they're not going to get that. And the Tory party, which went in to the election a few weeks ago, hating the idea of electoral reform, is rapidly warming to it. Um, In reality, alternative vote tends to favour the person who comes first in the first round. Um, There are some seats where you come first in the first round and then the top-ups push the person who's close behind in second um, into victory. Generally, if you get 40% of the vote, you probably pick up the extra 10% somewhere on the distribution. It doesn't make too much difference. Australia, where I half come from, has alternative vote. Um, It has two parties in politics. It has majority government, or at least coalition, very formal coalition um, from the Conservative side. It doesn't feel like a proportional system at all, and it's certainly not a diverse or an open system. That's an interesting point, Mike, isn't it? The Australian example, they've got this system already. The central party, the centre party has been crushed. Um, and uh, could the Liberal Democrats end up being the losers here from their own reform? 
Well, of course they could. I mean, the great thing about electoral reform, when uh, anybody tries to fiddle the franchise one way or another, going way back into the 19th century, I think the 1867 Reform Act produced the opposite result of what it was meant to. 1970, Harold Wilson gave the vote to 18-year-olds, expecting all the teeny boppers to vote left. And of course, they kicked him out at the first opportunity. So uh, the joy of it all is you can't uh, predict it. Uh, it's a uh, sort of default position of the Lib Dems to say they are the victims of the two-party first-past-the-post system, but you could also say with equal conviction they are the product of it. They are the place, I call it the NCP, the National Car Park Vote, where people who would never dream of voting Labour park their votes when they're fed up with the Tories and vice versa. And uh, who knows, they might do very well out of it. They might lose. The uh, Free Democrats, their nearest equivalent in West in the German coalition at the moment, are doing extremely badly in bed with uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel, and the coalition may not last. It's just fascinating to watch. We don't read across often enough what the foreigners are doing. Raf, do you think this is the start of a new politics? Or? Well, well, I think that that point that Mike makes is very important, that the, if neither the Labour nor the Conservatives can muster enthusiasm or immense hostility towards this, it becomes Nick Clegg's midterm election for him to stand on. And that could be very dangerous for him. First of all, it means he could lose the, lose the referendum. Yep. Um, but the other point is that the scale of it, the ambition, will shrink over time. And I, listening to Nick Clegg there, you sense that it's, it's, it's a little bit like a, a relationship you know, between lovers where a few months in, the fizz has gone out, and he's trying to recapture that spark of when their eyes first met across the smoke-filled room in the TV debates three months ago that he might somehow represent the, the change of politics but the reality is when the cuts start to bite and you're a year into this government a, a referendum on AV is not going to feel like lighting the Olympian flame of a new kind of politics and nothing he says will get back to that first kiss of the debates three months ago but if times are hard I mean it could feel like uh, well it could feel like a very rocky campaign because we're not used in this culture to people on the same side of the House of Commons campaigning against each other, although there is a precedent in the European referendum from the 70s. But then what if it's lost? What then for the Liberals in the coalition? Do you think they'd stick in? I think so, yes. I think they are... They will probably. I think they've burnt their boats in a lot of respects to whatever the politics and whatever the Liberal Democrat Party was before they went into this coalition. So their whole political project now is building on this coalition, turning themselves into something other than what they were. And if they're smart, and a lot of them are, they will start working out an exit strategy, not from the coalition, but from the view that says. Uh, electoral reform is the only meaningful quid pro quo that they want out of this. Yes. They need to distance themselves from that. It, it, it's a test for Labour too. I mean, we have, we have to sort of see this is a party that claims to be a progressive reforming party that wants to change the constitution, and yet many of its senior people and some of its leadership candidates are trying to defend first past the post. So we may have the sign of the Liberal Democrats with a few Tories and some Labour people campaigning for a yes, and the old guard of the Labour Party standing alongside John Redwood and co, saying no, and the public may not, I think, vote against this change. It's, it's, it's very conventional now to say, of course, it will be lost, or when it's lost, what will the Lib Dems do? Polling suggests there is a willingness to vote for it, not an enthusiasm, not much understanding, but at least the potential of a yes vote. The public aren't starting saying definitely no change. That, I mean, if we moved did get this, recently, hasn't it, this? They've, they've, the public has more of an interest in the idea that the rules are rigged, I think, than it did five or ten years ago. It might do. It might also have a slightly greater tolerance for coalition. And one of the Tory arguments against 
um, electoral change was always that this would produce unstable coalition government. And of course, now they're telling us coalitions are a good thing. Well, they're not telling us they're a good thing, really. They're saying it was an absolute uh, a mathematical necessity for both sides, and neither side particularly. But they can't campaign. Wanted. But they can't camp- They can't run, run a campaign saying oh, we, oh, hate, yes, we, they, hate, oh, we hate coalitions. Oh yes, they can. Not as uh, easily. Uh, well, no, I disagree. I mean, I think both sides, both of the arguments, including yours, are tenable here. Uh, Lib Dems point to the, their ability to campaign against Labour in Scotland and Wales, having been in coalition with them. I'm not sure that the Lib Dems in either country have prospered very much in recent years, but we'll put that to one side. No, and of course, I, the Lib Dems do better under first-past-the-post in Scotland than they would under proportional representation. Yeah, funny more, old world, more MPs than they deserve. I mean, I, 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 I think the voters might be in mind for a change on the grounds that uh, uh, first-past-the-post has produced this terribly wicked parliament we've just lost. Uh, then again, the public mood may change, especially if the economic storm uh, clouds uh, uh, darken. So uh, we're taking what, was it Disraeli, when they reformed the franchise, doubled it or tripled it in the mm. 1860s, famously called a leap in the dark. We, uh, we don't know what uh, we're going to get here. And Julian's point about the boundaries, the implications of that are um, extremely uh, important in, 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 in this context. How it pans out uh, remains to be seen. I thought the devastating uh, conceit this week was Simon Hoggart describing Mr. Clegg making his statement as a bit like um, Billy Liar, the fantasist in Keith Waterhouse's first novel, inventing the great Republic of Ambrosia, or Kingdom was it, and Steve Bell drew him as Bubbles. This is a kind of the Cleggian world where everything is fair and proportionate and equal, but will it stand up to the horrors of... Um, the horrors of deep cuts and uh, a double-dip recession, just, global or local. Just, Mike, on this specific question, though, about redrawing the map, um, you know, you can already hear Labour grumbling about uh, gerrymandering and this sort of thing, It will, you know, whose seats are being abolished more Labour than Tories. But on, in principle, is there any argument at all against just equalising the seats? Well, if it were possible to equalise the seats easily... Uh, it would be done. The fact is, a lot of people move. And as everybody knows, uh, uh, that people move out of cities, uh, they get better jobs, they move to the suburbs, they move to the countries, they have a better lifestyle. Uh, uh, and let's all rejoice for that, the greater sum of human happiness. But in doing so, they often take upwardly mobile Tory votes with them to constituencies where they're not needed. So unless you behave like the Soviet Union and give people uh, permission to move or deny oh, no, no, come it, on, then you to get movement. It's perfectly possible to speed up the process. I mean, the starting point has got to be the census data um, or whatever other data you use as a measure well, of the size of the constituency. We're due a census in 2013. Exactly, and that's a problem because the, the, the data used for the current boundaries is um, 15 years old. The the other issue is, is that you could simply redistribute parts of the country, and, and that might have happened anyway. Wales is greatly overrepresented in Parliament, um, hugely, and, and that will cost the yes, Tory seats. Once you say Wales is overrepresented, then you know perfectly well it's not simply a numerical equation. There are good reasons why Wales, which are has nothing there? to do with the Labour Party, should have much more than it should. Oh, because it's a tiny part of the country. So with we feel a sorry for them, identity. so we're going to give them some extra seats. That what? doesn't seem a very good reason. No, no, it happens all the time, Julian. You're wrong about this. Um, and in the United States, 
uh, they, they resolve this problem by having two forms of representation. Every state has two senators, and uh, they're based upon geography, two each, and, and the House of Representatives is based on population. So Montana has two senators, but only one congressman, because nobody lives there. And that's fine. They have as many senators as California, and the system works quite well. Isn't the problem here, Raph, that like, you can see the beautiful design of the American Constitution and argue we should have something like that, but it's all going to be incremental muddling through British stuff, isn't yep. it? Yeah, I think that's, that, well, that, that's certainly true, but I think there is a, a wider problem that this whole process is going on, well, partly because, as we said before, the Liberal Democrats um, and the Office of the Deputy Prime Minister need something very important to do, but also because of the expenses scandal and the perception that politics needed to fundamentally change. But the fact is the political practitioning class has no idea what people actually mean when they say they want politics to change. What they mean is they want some vague notion of politicians to look very different and sound very different from how they are. Well, That's they not do. going to happen they, because we've the got... The coalition a- is a change. It's an extraordinary change. And I don't know anybody who watches it close up or the people I talk to in the supermarket queue who doesn't acknowledge that, you know, we've stumbled... The British way, as Tom said, into an extraordinary change with this coalition. We've just spent 20 minutes talking about the different mechanics of change. It ought to be very stimulating and the voters ought to feel they've achieved something. Don't know whether they do because the papers spend all the time telling them what a bunch of shower the politicians are and... I don't disagree, Mike, but I think the, the reality is what happens is the political class reaches for technical solutions that don't in any way describe how most people express their will for politics to change. Mm, I wonder whether the smart way to fight this referendum is going to be to say that AV is, a, is a, an easier way for you to root out the rotters because you, you, if you've got 50% against an MP, that MP has to go. But um, that's it for this week. I'm back next week with Allegra and we hope with the first of our uh, Labour leadership contenders, Andy Burnham, who will be joining joining us here in the pod. Um, My thanks to Julian Glover, Raphael Bear and Michael White. The producer was Phil Maynard and I'm Tom Clark. Goodbye.